Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. A growing number of countries and industries have adopted the goal of aggressively reducing carbon dioxide emissions over the coming decades. A strategy that is central to the effort to decarbonize is electrification, or the switching away from fossil fuels, such as the gasoline that's used to power cars, to alternatives that run on cleanly produced electricity, such as EVs. Yet there are major parts of the economy where electricity does not yet offer a practical alternative to fossil fuels, and where other carbon-free solutions are needed. Industries where decarbonization is particularly challenging include steel and cement production and aviation and shipping. On today's podcast, we're going to explore what may be the most promising low-carbon alternative for these hard-to-address industries. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, but it's notoriously dirty to produce in its pure form here on Earth. Hydrogen and its derivatives are combustible and could replace fossil fuel in industry, assuming that they can be produced economically, cleanly, and at scale. Today's guest is involved in developing large-scale production of green hydrogen. Alicia Eastman is president of Intercontinental Energy, a company that's developing large hydrogen hubs in the Arabian Peninsula and Australia. Alicia will discuss the economic and political drivers behind green hydrogen and what a global hydrogen market might look like. She'll also talk about the challenges that the hydrogen supply chain can present to local communities and efforts to address these challenges. Alicia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And welcome back to Penn, at least virtually, as you're recording from London. You are a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, I understand. That is true. I went to Wharton for undergrad. So I wonder if you could start us out with a brief introduction to the role that hydrogen might play in the energy system. As I mentioned in the intro, hydrogen can replace fossil fuels in certain industries. But could you tell us more about where clean hydrogen might be most valuable? Sure. Um, and I think that when I speak to these industries, it's not just clean hydrogen, but also the derivatives of uh, clean hydrogen. So maybe ammonia, syn fuels, there's, there's lots of different things that you can make with the clean hydrogen that also make it easier to transport. So there's a number of reasons why you might want to go downstream a bit further. Just to circle through the top categories, um, marine shipping is a big one, um, heavy industry and chemicals uh, for grid stabilization and microgrids, aviation, co-firing, I think uh, data centers and computing, uh, heavy, heavy machinery and trucking, trains, and, uh, and, and fertilizer, which is the, pretty much the only use right now for ammonia. Now, so there's a lot of talk about green hydrogen. I wonder if, you know, before we get into the rest of the conversation here, if you could differentiate between green and blue hydrogen for us. Sure. Blue hydrogen is essentially gray hydrogen with carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture and usage um, layered on top. So currently, there really isn't very much blue hydrogen. Most of the hydrogen produced today is gray, and it's produced using mostly natural gas with the steam methane reform process. 
to be blue, you add on that additional equipment, which takes the carbon away and, and doesn't release it into the atmosphere. And then you need to store it somewhere, um, which is actually a bit difficult because it, it is actually hard to store. Um, and so people are considering um, putting it under the North Sea or they, they're using salt caverns or different ways to store it. But it needs to be stored forever. So it is, it is a bit of a conundrum for the industry. Plus, um, the equipment to um, capture the carbon has been to date extremely expensive um, and, and not terribly effective. But uh, green hydrogen is produced by uh, using renewables of some sort, wind, solar, um, hydro, uh, sometimes geothermal. So essentially using that green electricity in order to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And that's done during using a process of electrolysis. So you need an electro, uh, electrolyzer, you feed in the water and you get out uh, oxygen and hydrogen. So the green process obviously doesn't involve any fossil fuels. The blue process could theoretically remove all of the fossil fuels, um, but to this date, that has not happened. And there's also a lot of problems just with um, flaring of the gas, even before you talk about producing um, blue hydrogen. So the, the whole process from beginning to end uh, involves a lot of, of carbon and methane that needs to be, uh, needs to be captured and, and needs to not go into the atmosphere in order to compare with green. So basically gray with the capture of the carbon or greenhouse gas emissions, essentially. Exactly. And in each market, the percentage captured in order to qualify as blue will, will be some, somewhat different. Um, but it, it seems like people are, are circling around at least 90 percent has to be captured. So I wonder if you could introduce Intercontinental Energy, the company that you lead, and your approach to the market, and, and essentially what you're working on is developing hydrogen hubs. What is a hydrogen hub? So hydrogen hub is, is similar to what other people are referring to as hydrogen valleys or hydrogen ports. Because we were first, I think hydrogen hub captures it a little bit better. Essentially, it is the ecosystem for a hydrogen. So by building um, very large projects, we can attract uh, the whole supply chain to build near us. And that creates, allows you to create even a circular economy. So for instance, if we attract a steel making company uh, nearby, we can provide green hydrogen to them. They produce steel. We buy the steel, we roll it ourselves, and we can put up our own turbines um, in order to produce the, uh, the green electrons that then become the hydrogen that then becomes the steel. So you get the circular economy thing going. Um, I think what differentiates our hubs from other locations is we've been very specific about the sites that we've chosen and they're all similar. Um, they're all quite similar to one another. So there are at least 25 gigawatts of upstream wind and solar. And just to give you an idea of what that means, that's, that's larger than Three Gorges Dam. So that's the largest power plant in the world for the smallest project we have planned. And these projects um, use are always in coastal deserts. Uh, so they have a lot of sun during the day. They have a lot of wind at night. That gives you near baseline power. And because, you know, you have such a high input of sun, the solarity is very high. 
and the speed of the wind is very high, it's the cheapest green electrons in the world. And it's located where there is nothing else. I mean, in, in Oman, it literally looks like the moon. There's just an absolute flat. You, there's nothing to see in a, a complete 360 around each mast. Um, so that profile, uh, in addition, we add on economies of scale. So they're all very large projects. And we've optimized a fully integrated project. So we have the upstream wind and solar, we have the midstream creation of um, hydrogen, and then we have the downstream ammonia. And we use every opportunity we can to optimize every step in that balance of plants, as well as in the production of the major cost driver, which is the, the energy, which is the electrons. Um, so all of our projects are exactly like that, um, which means that they offer the least expensive form of energy in the world. And it is very attractive for most companies to spend a lot less on energy and be green. And so that is how we anticipate building out the supply chain around these uh, projects. And these projects, because they're not extractive, they literally last forever. Uh, you repower at 25 years, uh, the ammonia lasts only 50 years, but you know the, the resource doesn't go away, it's not extractive. And, and that means that you can really commit an entire community to the project, you can create a community and you can cater to the needs of that community. So in, I'll just take an example in Western Australia where we have two projects, there's a lot of mining there now um, in the past, there has not been a lot of consideration for tr traditional owners of the land uh, for the native population of Australia. Um, recently, they've had native title has been recognized by um, the country and, and by more and more different industry players. And in our case, we decided to take it a couple steps further and we have partnered with the Murning people who are the traditional owners of the land on our 50 gigawatt plus Western green energy hub. So they own a portion of the project and they have a permanent seat on the board. And we have a charter with them, which, which means that we really can't do anything to the land that they don't agree to. And this structure is now going to be copied through the rest of Western Australia, not just for hydrogen, but also for um, other extractive uh, activities like oil and gas and, and mining. And we think this is a, just a huge step change improvements in best practices with uh, partnering or, or interacting with traditional owners. And at the end of the day, it makes it a, a much more successful project um, in the long term. And it, I think, allows us to help create a community that the community actually wants, <laughs> as opposed to um, determining what they need. They, they're actually part of the company, they're, they're part of the board, and, and, and they can steer us in the direction of what it is that they like, whether it's um, something as simple as architecture and indoor-outdoor shade structures, or um, you know the type of, of schooling that they need. And they're, they're, it's just, we, we cater to the community um, and go beyond just upskilling or, or having jobs available in, in one industry. We really want to have uh, a full ecosystem 
that is entirely uh, renewables based. So you have four projects under development, two are in Western Australia, one is in Oman, and I believe you have one in Saudi Arabia as well. What these all have in common, as you said, is that they have strong wind and solar resources, so you could maximize the operation, electricity production in the electrolyzers that would be producing the green hydrogen. Also, these are all pretty much coastal, so I assume that that facilitates the export of hydrogen or ammonia to, to markets. Now, I want to ask you here, where are these projects in the development process right now in terms of investment? And have off-take agreements been signed with customers to take this, uh, this green resource? So all of the projects are in development. Um, the first project that we announced, which is the Asian Renewable Energy Hub in Western Australia. Um, we just announced that BP has become an investor and they will be the operator of that project. So that uh, will eventually speed up the project, but while we were negotiating, it obviously slowed down the project. Um, so um, they were, we're really looking still FID around 2025, 2026, but that means where we don't really have product until 2027, 2028. Um, that seems really far away, but it is actually around the corner. And for a lot of these markets that we're catering to, uh, especially if we're making ammonia, for instance, we think that um, ammonia as a marine fuel is really the best bet for that industry. There's been a lot of analysis and using any other solutions should cost 40% more in order to make the energy transition. So green ammonia is fast becoming um, the green fuel that the industry is coalescing around. And um, so I think that they will not have the ammonia ships ordered, purchased, built, everything available until around 2027, 2028 anyway. Uh, so I think we're actually quite aligned to the market for what we're really focused on. Um, I mean, the, the benefit of our projects being in these coastal deserts is, as you say, it's on the water, which is not only a, a good thing for export, but also we use water, right? We're electrolyzing water. So we can take um, water from the sea, we desalinate it at the cheapest possible price because of our inexpensive green electrons, um, and then we can split it there. Um, but these, these locations are very far from other places. Uh, yeah, Australia is very far from anywhere. Oman and Saudi are closer, but, but still sailing days are the same from Oman to uh, Europe as it is to Japan. Um, so we're really having to move the product a considerable distance. And that means that we really need to think about the transport vector uh, because hydrogen is not that easy to transport. Um, if you want to ship it, you have to keep it at negative 253 degrees Celsius. That is 20 degrees above absolute zero. Wow. So it's quite expensive. Um, and by making ammonia, which is essentially just adding nitrogen from the air to the hydrogen, and the air we breathe is about 70% nitrogen. So this is not um, 
not scary, scary stuff here. Um, you create ammonia. Ammonia is is so much more dense, uh, you know, energetically dense than um, hydrogen. Um, and you can ship it. You can. It needs to be kept at negative thirty three degrees Celsius, or with some pressure at ten bar, um, it would be ambient temperatures. So it's much easier to ship, um, and that's uh, the best travel vector or the best transport vector that we've found. But we also think that ammonia can be used as ammonia. So in shipping, they're talking about using ammonia uh, in essentially an internal combustion engine. And all you're doing is adding a bit of a scrubber because what you get when you burn ammonia is NOx, um, which is uh, nitrogen and one oxygen or nitrogen and two oxygens put together. all you really need to do is have a kind of scrubber, which ironically uses ammonia <laughs> um, in order to separate those apart and you can release it into the air. So it's normal air with oxygen and nitrogen uh, separated. So it's really a zero greenhouse gas solution uh, for shipping. And, and it's, uh, it, it's a great way for us to not just transport the product, but the product is used in that way. So you're really retaining the most amount of energy um, from the whole production of, of hydrogen and ammonia. You know, I want to jump in a little bit deeper into that issue of emissions. So in July, the EU targeted 5.4 billion euros for uh, to hydrogen subsidies. And the EU plan, although I don't believe it's finalized at this point, is to import 10 million tons of green hydrogen by 2030. I would imagine that would be on your radar for the projects that you're working on. Now, with the European goals for hydrogen, as well as uh, what we're seeing in the United States with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, both of which have uh, incentives and subsidies for hydrogen, there are some standards for the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the resource. Looking at the value chain, you're talking about converting the hydrogen to ammonia for export. I am not a scientist, but I believe there are some emissions involved in the production of ammonia from hydrogen. What's the total footprint of? Oh, there's not. No, so so just to back it up, our projects don't involve any fossil fuels at all. Okay. So I mean, I I guess you can you can say that when you uh, the steel that goes into our turbines, and so the actual equipment has, uh, you know, people will, from the start, not be able to use only green electrons or hydrogen or or green sources in order to build that equipment. So that equipment has inside, uh, you know, carbon emissions have occurred to create that equipment. But the eventual goal is, as I said, this circular economy where we are providing green uh, electrons to the whole uh, supply chain and so they're not using um, fossil fuels in their production of, of the products as well. But if you just take a standalone project and you're not talking about the equipment, you're just talking about sort of the OPEX, you're talking about the running of the system, you're using the wind and the solar to create green electrons, you're desalinating the water, you're splitting the water, and then you're using what is called the Haber-Bosch, a very old school way to make ammonia from hydrogen, but there's no need for fossil fuels. It's just what other people have always used. The energy is is all that's necessary. And 
what makes this actually work out for us is that our energy is so inexpensive. It's not just green. It's the cheapest in the world. All right. So let's jump into the economics of this. What are the drivers that determine the cost structure and the economics of the green hydrogen industry? So predominantly, it is the resource. The most expensive element in the whole production of hydrogen and uh, ammonia, so or any sin fuels or any type of derivative of hydrogen, the primary driver is the cost of energy. So the cost of that renewable energy. That's why it's so important that these large facilities be located in areas that have that very strong sun during the day and the heavy winds at night. Um, so you've got round the clock, um, really strong, very inexpensive energy. Um, so it, it's the absolute most important factor. And then you have no fossil fuel market volatility to look at either, do you? Exactly. And, and that's something people are already, are only just starting to realize. I mean, I think that the war in um, Ukraine has obviously made people very aware of just how capricious the uh, fossil fuel markets can be. Uh, it's always been the case. I mean, I, I don't, I think it was only four years ago when oil was negative, where people were paying to keep oil. Um, and Cafe Pacific very prudently decided to hedge the cost of oil before, you know, beforehand. And they almost went out of business for that because oil went down in price so dramatically. So it's really tough to manage uh, a serious input to your, in your, to your business, almost no matter what you do, um, that is going to go up and down in price uh, quite dramatically and very often out of your control. And this exact opposite is the case with renewables. I mean, once you have your 25-year plan for you know, your upstream wind and solar, um, you know what it's going to cost. You know what your pricing is going to be. There will be some inflationary pressures from probably workforce or um, you, know, you could be going through a period of inflation like right now, which is unusual. Um, but there'll be a lot of deflationary pressures. So the electrolyzers and a lot of the supply chain is going to go down in price dramatically. Um, there's still reductions in um, price for, for just uh, wind turbines. So what, what you see outside, what you see um, offshore is going to come onshore at a much cheaper price, but the same capacity. Um, so you know, you're you're really looking at a pretty solid, um, a pretty solid understanding of what your costs are going to be, and they're probably going to drop. And phase by phase, they will definitely drop. So when you do an offtake agreement with, um, you know, a buyer, they they can actually rely on that price and plan for that price for 20, 25 years. And I think this gets back to a question you asked earlier, and I, I just I think I forgot to answer it entirely. But um, there, there is definite interest from all over the world in offtake agreements, in long-term offtake agreements, um, because they definitely want to get uh, a decent price. Um, they, uh, when the market is small, when the demand is so much higher than what is being produced, um, the spot market is going to be extremely expensive. So there are a lot of people that want to do offtake agreements now. 
Um, typically, you, you don't really do an offtake agreement um, until right before FID. Uh, it's just standard project finance to do all that papering in that last year. So, you know, we have relationships. We know what people want. Um, a lot of people are sending demand signals, and obviously we're sending, sending supply signals. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have tight relationships with um, the different markets. Uh, so we, we know what is necessary, um, but we won't be announcing offtakes until uh, much closer to the FID. So, you know, we, it, things that are announced this year are, are really based on nothing because the, neither the buyer or the seller is prepared for the product in most cases. Well, that's a really interesting point. At this point, the market for green hydrogen, I imagine, is quite small. We hope that it expands. The idea is that there would be many small potential customers today, but in a few years, are you looking for much larger customers, one or two kind of anchor uh, customers for, for your output? How does that look? Yeah. Um, so I think you've seen the, the greatest push by Northern uh, Asia. Uh, so Japan is looking to uh, co-fire with coal and gas in, in their turbines. They're going to start at 20% co-firing. So that'll be a 20% reduction in their pollution coming from power. Um, and they're going, planning to increase that to 100%. So they'll basically be just using ammonia in their um, production of power instead of coal. Um, and in some cases, gas. So um, that's that's one big buyer that already has an ammonia purchasing office uh, set up in Japan. They've already had uh, companies like Jera put out RFPs for purchase of green ammonia. So they're very ahead in this in this uh, case and definitely want to do long term contracts. Um, and uh, Korea is also really ahead. Um, Korea has had legislation uh, forcing companies to have a certain percentage of their energy coming from hydrogen. And it's a different way of doing it versus a target uh, or uh, incentives or taxes. Uh, it's just a, a law, essentially. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see how all the, all the different hydrogen roadmaps are um, not only different in what they expect to use based on their own resources and what they have access to and what kind of industries that they're in, but also how they choose to announce or enforce or um, incentivize is all very different around the world. And then the last uh, one I would say, which is a global demand and, and the one that we're quite focused on is uh, the marine uh, shipping. So using uh, green ammonia as um, bunker fuel. So in lieu of, you know, pretty dirty diesel or, or bunker fuel. And that is a global market. Uh, we are members of the Getting to Zero Coalition, which is essentially 120 different shipping companies, including some of the largest that have agreed that by 2030, 5% of their fuel will come from hydrogen or, you know, hydrogen derivatives like ammonia, which is, which is um, more likely. And um, most of them have commitments that are far beyond that. So they're, they're closer to 30% or, or higher. So, um, but even a minimum 5% is a giant market. Um, it's a market that we really can't meet uh, by 2030. Uh, there, there just won't be enough of, um, so there's going to have to be a lot of different solutions in the short term. Uh, and that's one of the reasons you see some players using 
green methanol that they're going to use because they can do it now. And then eventually they will be switching to, um, to green ammonia. Um, and then you get into the 2030s and you're going to have a lot more um, availability. But just to give you an idea of the size of the market and what's required, if we were to switch over all of shipping to green ammonia, which of course we wouldn't because there's lots of different you know, cruise ships are probably not going to use green ammonia. But if we were to switch the entire industry, that is about 660 million tons of green ammonia in one year. And one 25 upstream gigawatt project, you know, sort of our smallest project, like like AREH in, in Australia, would produce about 10 million tons per year of green ammonia which means you would need 66 of those projects to meet the demand for just the shipping sector. And I think that that really shows how much more demand there is than supply for these, these difficult to decarbonize sectors. Well, I just want to note here that there are a number of other companies that are involved in developing uh, green hydrogen projects in addition to intercontinental, all kind of look about the same stage at this point. You know, I want to point out the fact that the countries that you're working in right now, developing the projects for uh, green hydrogen, those countries, for the most part, have substantial fossil fuel infrastructure in place. Is there a chance that blue hydrogen, for some reason, may be favored in these areas, again, to make use of that already in place infrastructure? Well, I mean, I think personally that especially in the case of fertilizer, because fertilizer is essentially in a captive situation right now. You know, you have, you have gas and, and then they're, they're creating the um, hydrogen. And then from the hydrogen, they actually make their own ammonia or urea and sort of ship that out. So because that's already in place and that just requires the add-on of the carbon capture technology, I do think that that particular area of fertilizer will will probably be blue. I, I don't think it is likely to be green. Um, and, you know, the, I'm not saying that it can't be equal to green because if they are able to capture, say, 95% from start to finish of any kind of greenhouse gases, and then the other 5% they offset in some way, well, then you're pretty much that same, same, you know, it's, 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 it's fine. Um, but it doesn't make as much sense for, for green um, companies to, to make fertilizer as it does for blue. In terms of the country's strategies, I would say that Oman, does, they did just have a discovery of a bit more oil, but um, they, they don't have a lot. And, you know, they never have been, uh, they've never had as much as, you know, Kuwait or Saudi or any of these others. It, it's not... They don't have a lot of hydrocarbons, actually, but they do have some of the best uh, areas and resource for wind and solar it is far better than anywhere in, in the rest of the Middle East. So for them, this is a fantastic opportunity to really be a leader in this space. In the case of Saudi, they definitely want to be a leader in, in green hydrogen. They also want to be a leader in blue. But I, I think that they recognize that blue is not here forever, um, that it's sort of a stopgap until we can create enough green. 
Um, because of the, the problems that we've mentioned before about the volatility of fossil fuels, obviously the decarbonization um, efforts that and promises that different countries have made and different sectors and you know different regulations upon different sectors, um, you know, blue is is not a long term solution. Uh, it's it's a short and medium term solution at best. Um, and I think that uh, most countries, at least Saudi, does recognize that. And they want to be one of the largest players in green because they do have um, a lot of resource. They certainly have a lot of solar, but they also have a number of areas that have both solar and wind, um, you know, which is which is where our project is. Um, and then Australia, uh, Australia obviously <laughs> under the last prime minister was not very um, supportive of a clean environment, <laughs> um, but uh, the new one is, is supportive. Um, and they, I mean, everybody fully recognizes what a huge opportunity green hydrogen is because Australia is gigantic and, um, you know, it's just so much easier. It's so much less risky to build a hydrogen project than it is to do a new oil and gas development. If you think about it, like with oil and gas, you can dig a billion dollar hole and find out it's dry. Um, that doesn't happen with renewables. I mean, even with the satellite maps, I can tell pretty much, you know, what the general wind and sun are going to be. And then I might spend a year or two inexpensively putting up masts and, and sodars and lidars to, to gauge what the, you know, with the much more specific data so we can really plan for the very specific data. But I'm not going to find out two years later that there's no wind or that there's no sun. Um, so the risk going into a new project is way, way lower for, um, you know, for renewables. Um, and I think, you know, if you're going to start a new project to, to make renewables uh, or, or hydrogen, then renewables are definitely a less risky way to go about it. Uh, and on top of that, the need to electrify is still there as well. So, you know, these green fuels are for difficult to decarbonize sectors, but it's not like we're done with electrification. So all of the renewables are, there is always going to be a need for more renewables. So whatever can get approved, um, you know, people can build and, and will will do well because that is the only direction that we're moving in. You know, I'd like to get your thoughts, uh, building on what you just said, on a fundamental tension that exists, and that is the tension between using electricity or clean electricity to produce hydrogen versus using that same clean electricity uh, as an energy source for homes, for businesses, and for industry. Obviously, a lot more wind and solar is going to be needed to meet you know, the decarbonization needs of, of the world. Yeah. Um, but uh, when we're looking at all the, you know, wind and solar power that could be dedicated to producing hydrogen, there's a question, would that be better used for the process of decarbonization yeah. and rapid decarbonization to produce electricity that is directly used by consumers? Yeah. So, uh, so I'll kind of take this in two parts. So one is, um, the electrons do not travel well, right? Um, you do have some 
overland HVDC and also AC. Uh, you have undersea cables that can go maybe 3,000 kilometers, but it's it's not very easy um, to move green electrons around. So the only time that you're really making a decision between using renewables for electrification and using renewables to create hydrogen are in pretty um, crowded and um, pretty crowded areas like like Europe or, or even parts of, of the United States, right? Um, in in most places where where our projects are, there is no demand for um, for electrons at this time. Um, we will be creating demand for it. So in a way, I mean, we will because we're we're making um, the hydrogen, we make the electrons, and because we're making the hydrogen, we attract the supply chain, and we will begin giving electrons and hydrogen to the supply chain and to all of the other ancillary businesses that are in that hub. Um, so we may turn from an export-oriented entity into a much more um, locally used uh, resource entity. So as, as this, the phases continue, as the build-out continues, you might see a, a very different breakdown between where um, where the energy is actually going, starting with the offtake, because in some cases, the offtake is also a better security risk. Um, so for places like Oman that don't have very high ranking ratings, it's better to have an offtaker to get the project started. But then once you've attracted different companies to buy the product and they all have great, you know, sort of credit, um, then you're able to finance these next phases that can be more locally focused. That's sort of our situation and, and, and one side of it. But in there is another side that where I would agree with your initial um, hypothesis. I mean, people are talking about Algeria making hydrogen to send to uh, Europe. And Algeria meets its energy needs 99% with coal. So for me, that just seems wrong that you would set up renewables in Algeria and instead of using first those renewables for the local grid, you would turn that into hydrogen to send it to Europe so Europe can feel like they've decarbonized. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about the entire world decarbonizing and it's really not that important if it's, uh, you know, which part of the world is decarbonized. There's no, there's no uh, you know, gold medal for, for decarbonizing only your, uh, you know, your country. And, and this leads to other sort of extrapolations as well. If we're perfectly clean, but then we send all of our dirty work to China, um, you know, the project, the products that we get back have that carbon footprint and they have whatever environmental damage goes with it is really the responsibility of, of the West who have had those products um, manufactured in, in locations that have sometimes had lower uh, standards um, for the environment. So it is hard actually to do the accounting for all of this. And I think one of the reasons that Europe sort of threw out the additionality um, but the reason for the additionality was exactly what you say. Uh, they didn't want current green um, resources to be used to make hydrogen 
Um, they want because you know they they want to continue having as green a grid as they can have, and even more so. So adding more offshore, adding everyone would like to have their green their grid be greener. But you you do need to have both, and I think the best answer is, you know, if if the need for renewables is located next to where you can build renewables, then you should be using that first, right? But it is actually quite hard to get a lot of permitting and approvals from government to go any distance in Europe or Australia or the US. I mean, you'd be shocked. It can take 10 years to get approvals to just put up an AC line to get from one place to another. So that I think that the what will really help um, electrification is going to be a much more flexible and streamlined uh, permitting process. You know, you just talked a lot about different geographies and, and kind of the geographic issues here. And I want to look at one slightly different aspect of this. You've mentioned that the quality of resources is overwhelmingly important uh, in in these projects. That's why you're in Australia and the Arabian Peninsula, where there are good wind and solar resources. So does that mean that on the supply side, certain geographies that we're already familiar with in the Middle East that dominate the oil market might, for a different set of reasons, also dominate the global hydrogen trade? Yeah, I think there'll be some overlap. You're going to see a lot of new players. I mean, no one's gotten into it yet, but Mauritania is an incredible resource. Um, that's obviously going to take a World Bank and a, a lot of different um, entities to get involved to make investors comfortable with with that. But but the resource is there, and they certainly <laughs> have not been selling anything, um, you know, to the, to the market so far. So I think you have opportunities in places like Chile. You've you've you have opportunities uh, where there haven't been, where there isn't oil and gas. Um, you do have some overlap, especially with Saudi. And, you know, they did just get a bit lucky there twice. <laughs> but uh, I think you're still going to have a lot more uh, opportunity and ver- to, to, to diversify. It's, it's not going to be as uh, concentrated in, you know, one or two places. Um, and even if Saudi wants to be the largest uh, green hydrogen producer, and and that's a great goal, um, it's not going to be the same as as when you look at the if you've looked, if you've ever seen this sort of uh, visual capitalist um, description of oil companies around the world, and it's in the form of a soccer ball, and you, you see Aramco, it, that's like almost the entire soccer ball, and then the rest of the world are these teeny tiny little pieces of it. Um, that won't be the case, I don't think, with uh, hydrogen. I think hydrogen will be much more uh, distributed around the world. You're going to have projects like ours that are really large and, and will be very inexpensive. And those will be super useful for things like shipping that are global and they need to be able to refuel around the world. But you're also going to have smaller projects where the, the resource quality doesn't have to be as high because you don't have to do the transportation. Um, and I think it's just an opportunity for a lot more places, um, to avoid fossil fuels, like, you know, like islands, people who are right now using generators with diesel, most of them will have an opportunity to, to use hydrogen. 
or, or to use um, to use renewables plus hydrogen so that they have some kind of um, firming factor for their for their microgrid or or grid. And and so I think it's actually much more opportunities uh, that are much more widely distributed than in just a couple of hands. You know, and I, I believe that your company or that you are looking at some potential developments in the United States as well. And it's a very interesting time here. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill supports clean hydrogen hubs. Uh, and there are four states, East Coast states, uh, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Jersey, that have entered into an agreement to develop a green hydrogen hub that would be powered by offshore wind farms. I think California is looking into something similar as well. want to get your, your view generally on the outlook for uh, hydrogen development, green hydrogen development in the United States. Does the U.S. have any particular you know competitive advantage in the area and what role will the uh, you know the recent uh, legislation out of Washington to move the industry forward? Well, I mean, I think obviously subsidies help, right? So all of the incentives that are in this new um, uh, IRA, which I'm now calling it, <laughs> um, are, are very helpful um, for the US to sort of get up to speed. The fact is that producing green hydrogen using offshore resources in in on the east coast or or west coast um, is still going to be much more expensive than the projects that I'm I'm working on because a your capacity factor is reduced to the offshore wind only like they're not combining it with solar um, which means you're talking about like maybe fifty percent instead of 70%, 75% capacity factors. So that makes a big difference. Um, also offshore is much more expensive than onshore. Uh, it's just, it's more expensive. So there it's gonna cost them more uh, to produce, but of course you have a subsidy in place. So that, that could be quite helpful. I think that Seattle and, and Washington also, they would like to have a hub um, and they could potentially be a hub for shipping uh, as well. The part that I'm the most interested in, or I think will make the most impact, is sort of the support for all of the supply chain technologies. I mean, just having more um, electrolyzer opportunities, uh, a lot more funding for different types of new technologies that could really make a difference in in um, transport or in production of hydrogen or ammonia. Uh, like cracking technology. So if you want to use ammonia in order to ship, but then you want to crack it back to hydrogen to use it, there are technologies and they are improving. But I think that this this bill offers a lot of incentives to get moving on, on different um, possibilities. And then in terms of solar, which is, is really just so necessary for almost all of the projects, you know, 90% of that is coming out of China right now. So having the U.S., having um, India, uh, Saudi, a lot of different locations that are going to be, that are right now subsidizing polysilicon and, and providing a lot of incentives to build solar panels locally, I think that's going to have a huge impact. It might not take the pricing down that much since it is quite inexpensive, but it'll, it'll really help in terms of, of having more choices. And generally speaking, even for the minerals that are required, just having more options for electrolyzers, like 
you know, last year, people only talked about alkaline and PEM, but now they talk about AEM, they talk about ETAC, they talk about SOEC, they talk about all these different options. And a lot of these options don't require a membrane, which means they don't require the platinum. Um, There are a lot of different ways to do things that don't require all the same minerals. Mm -hmm. And that diversification is going to be super helpful too, because obviously uh, we don't want to have to go to Congo for, you know, have that be the only place that we can get uh, any type of mineral. So, so countries really focusing also on that, on, on the mining side and different solutions that can use different, possibly less rare um, materials um, are, are really positive for the whole world. It, it'll be, uh, have a positive impact for everyone. Alicia, thanks for talking. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Today's guest has been Alicia Eastman, president of Intercontinental Energy. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more podcasts, research, and upcoming events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day.